You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Here's to the adventure-seeking dog mushers out there. The hundreds of you who stand on the runners dreaming and thinking about the northern lights. Of course, there is something else you can do if you've got something to say. Start a podcast with First Paw Media and harness your creative side. Maybe even earn enough money. Enough money to tell yourself, hey, I'm not just a dog musher. I'm a rover. I'm a wanderer. I'm a voyager. I'm an explorer. Visit firstpaw.media. Mush on over today. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert and I am joined by my co-hosts Tony and Michelle and we are continuing our Iditarod coverage here on Mushing Radio. Check us out at firstpod.media under the same name on social media as well. You can find all of our episodes live streaming on radiofreepalmer.org and we're also on old school radio on 89.7 in the Matsu Valley, Radio Free Palmer is the station. Let's jump right into this. Michelle, how's it going tonight? It's going great, Robert. And Tony, how's it going in your neck of the woods? Um, It's a little bit breezy and cloudy today, so it's a little chilly, but uh, snow is still slowly melting. So it's the perfect end to an almost ended Iditarod for me down here. Yes, it is a beautiful day up here in Willow as well. We went out to Check out the trails for our upcoming college class starting tomorrow night. And I met with 12, I guess it's 12, aspiring new mushers. And all of them are big-time Iditarod fans. And I think that's pretty cool uh, when you come up to Alaska and you can learn all about this sport and uh, maybe get your feet wet a little bit on a dog team. We're one of the very few colleges in the United States that teaches that course. So looking forward to that. So let's jump right into our trail report. As of right now, we have 22 mushers in. It looks like Mike Williams Jr. will probably come in as we're recording this episode. It's about 7 p.m. Alaska time on Thursday the 16th. So that leaves just Bailey, Joanna, Gerhardt, Bridget, Jason, and Jed still out on the trail. Uh, Everybody is either into White Mountain on their eight-hour rest or on their way to to White Mountain from Elam. So Jed Stevenson is currently our Red Lantern holder with Jason uh, uh, right in front of him. But the interesting story about Jason is he only has five dogs, which is the minimum amount of dogs you can have in harness when you finish the race. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a second. But before we do, what do you think, Tony? I know we mentioned last night that um, things are moving pretty fast. When do you think the final few teams will be in? I would say, uh, what, sometime later tomorrow or so? I'm 
thinking early morning Saturday, just looking here at the GPS, and uh, Jed is at about race mile 888, so he's got quite a ways to go before he gets to White Mountain, maybe late Friday night, depending on if they speed it up a bit, but I... I'm not sure that, that we're going to be completely done by Saturday. It'll really depend on what Jason and Jed do, uh, how long it takes them to get to White Mountain, and then how long it takes them to get to Nome, because they're kind of, they're just, they're plugging along, but it, it feels like they're going at a snail's pace right now. And I'm looking at the finishing times over the last several finishes, and it looks like people are coming in right around four or five hours-ish apart. What does it look like in Nome right now? Are people still milling around if you're looking at the live cams, or is it pretty pretty ghost towny at this time of, uh, of Iditarod? Um, well, I just pulled up, and, and you've got some people milling about, but for the most part, there's other stuff going on. We're looking at... Um, Still a little bit into dinner time, and then of course the bars and different organizations they have their big Iditarod celebration still going on, and of course the basketball tournament is there. So there's there's a lot of that, and I'm pretty sure there's actually a basketball tournament um, not in in Nome, but somewhere else on the west coast. So uh, there's there's quite a bit, I'm sure, of locals that are not necessarily on Front Street. But it's looking pretty quiet tonight. The sun is not totally setting yet, so uh, still really nice there. But we'll see some movement as Mike gets closer. Of course, he's still uh, he's still coming up the beach, so he's got a little ways. And I've been noticing that they're waiting longer and longer to come out to the shoot. So I'm guessing it's pretty cold in Nome today. Michelle, you have something. Oh no, if anybody just heard that random noise, one of our sled dogs that stays in the house at night with us was uh spooked by her own shadow. Yeah, when you're <laughs> when you're a year old puppy, lots of stuff is still uh still new to you for sure. So, let's talk a little bit about some of the stories that we have uh to talk about today. The first one is um Nick Petit Winning the um, fastest to uh, fastest time from safety to gnome. What do you know about that, Tony? Sure. So the uh, top twenty are the ones that get uh, to compete for that. And Nick came in. Uh, he's the fastest time by fifteen minutes. He came in right at two hours and I believe 17 minutes and the next fastest time would have been Deke's time. Uh, he came in at two hours, 27 minutes. So there's a 15 minute gap and that's not surprising. Nick actually spent some time resting in safety. He's also with his dogs having to need a little bit of extra rest there towards the uh, third third of the race. He's got a little bit more rested team than some of the ones that came in ahead of him. So it's not surprising Nick's got one of those speedier teams. And with him babying them a little bit more um, late in the race, it, it came down to he was able to put up some pretty fast times. It wasn't it wasn't a Smith team that, that got that award this year. 
And do you know right off the top what that award is? Is it a cash prize? Is it one of the native art type deals or a combination of two? It's not a native art one. I believe it is a cash prize. Um, in past races, I believe it was the No Mushing Club that sponsored it, but I don't have that pulled up right available for me to, to look at. I can probably pull it up in a few minutes here. Uh, we'll talk about that on Sunday, actually. I just thought you might have that yeah. as, as we're talking. So <laughs> next up on our list is last night we... We're guilty of a little bit of clickbait on the title of our episode. Michelle brought this up after our discussions last night, and we already recorded and uploaded it. We titled the episode Rookie of the Year, and we didn't even talk about the Rookie of the Year last night. Let's talk a little bit about Eddie Burke. I know that was a story we had talked about pretty much from the very beginning on our predictions. We talked about who we thought our Rookie of the Year uh, recipient was going to be, and it was, in fact, Eddie Burke. What do you know about uh, his coming in? Were there any interviews or stories or anything that uh, that caught of note that you might want to mention? Um, one of the things, and I think I talked about this last night, but one of the things that really stood out to me wasn't an interview. It was a fan video. They um, drove out on Snow Machine to Safety Roadhouse, to watch Eddie come in and it was it's a gorgeous video but it also shows just how desolate uh, it looks when you've got that windstorm um, he comes in it's a beautiful banner blue sky above him there's nothing but white snow that he's driving on and then the wind is just a consistent drift of this beautiful like powdered sugar snow and it just looks so cold and so Iditarod. So that's really stuck out. Um, and then he was met in the shoot by his daughter, who uh, jumped into his arms, basically. And they shared a really touching moment where she just held on to him for quite a while. Um, I'm sure she missed her partner in crime this last uh, couple of weeks, at least. Um, and then uh, another thing that was really kind of cool there in the shoot, uh, all of his team or friends or whatever, they made up these different sweatshirts and hoodies to wear with his, um, his silhouette of his mullet um, with kind of funny little sayings that I can't for the life of me remember off the top of my head but something about bringing the mullet back or something like that. So um, just a lot of fun. I know he's super excited. He's been on social media today, um, catching up with things and sharing some of his favorite photos that he's been tagged in. So it just a, just a really exciting story. And then, of course, I know we're talking Rookie of the Year, but Hunter Keith, who battled for that Spot with Eddie all the way through to the bitter end also came in in the top 10 he of course was one of the mushers that helped Eddie along the trail when Eddie lost his team so I think I think we might have a rookie uh, of the year you know in in Eddie but I think we might have a sportsmanship award go out to Hunter because he you, there are some fans that are a little upset that you know here Hunter helped out and and Eddie won. That's what sport is. That's what the race is about, guys. I hate to break it to you, but this is a sport. It is a race. 
um, you know, Hunter can, can make that call, but he still has to be able to run the team faster than Eddie runs his. So uh, just a, a really great story between two rookies that I hope that we will see for years to come. For sure. Uh, Robert, hold still just a second, if you don't mind. I'd like to read something from Eddie's website that I found quite interesting. Um, if you haven't had the opportunity, fans out there, go check out Eddie Burke's uh, website, eddieburkejr.com. He wrote on there, there are things in life that find you, even though you are never expecting them. That is how I feel about dog mushing. This sport and lifestyle is not for everyone, but I wouldn't change it for the world. And quite honestly, I think that um, once Eddie and Hunter are able to settle things down, I would imagine that they became fast friends out there on the trail. Yeah, if they're not already, I would imagine, because uh, I think they're pretty close around the same age. Is that right, Tony? 22 and 33. Oh, oh, one of them is yeah, much older. Yeah, I was going to say, Eddie's, Eddie's, Eddie's in his 30s. My dad made the same assumption because he was like, you know, talking about him and everything. He's like, yeah, these young guns are coming up. And I'm like, I don't think Eddie is considered a young gun, but okay. Well, when when you're over 50, like Michelle and I are, I guess everybody <laughs> everybody is a young gun for sure. But yeah, that's... Speak that... for yourself. I still consider myself hot and young. <laughs> but I do like that quote. And some of the greatest stuff, of course, it can be found on... Not only are on these guys' social media, but also on their websites. And that's something that's really improved over the last few years is just the time that these guys are spending uh, on building up a presence for their website. And that's actually a, a story that we're going to talk about in just a second about how uh, you can find out more about these mushers uh, aside from just going on to Insider. So the next story actually has an Eddie Burke twist to it. I'm sure that both Michelle and Tony have seen the pictures that Alaska Magazine posted. I guess it was sometime today. Uh, they're really cool, uh, high-from-the-air shots of some of the mushers uh, running along the coast. And one of the shots is one of the teams coming down from Cape Nome. And another one is uh, just two little specks of a, of a couple of teams that are running along the coast there. And it looks like uh, it is Eddie Burke in the lead, followed by Matt Failer. Uh, Michelle, you got a chance to see that fo those, those photos. What do you think about those? Those are pretty cool, aren't they? Well, if you didn't know that you needed to be looking for any specks on that landscape <laughs> shot, um, it looked just like a picture of vast whiteness, which is what Alaska is nine months out of the year. Um, what I found ironic was the explanation very much leads your eye into what it, it's actually showing you, but it could have very well been a meme of find this dot, you know? Um, but, but yeah, it just shows, in my opinion, it shows the significance of the land versus the dogs and the humans. Tony, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I shared that earlier today on my Facebook because, of course, I'm going to share awesome photos of the race. Um, but it was very reminiscent of some of Jeff Schultz's best, in my opinion, work. Um, one of Jeff's 
favorite type of photography is big landscape, small subjects. He likes to show the expansiveness of Alaska um, and how small and almost insignificant even the giant wildlife of brown bear and moose and stuff can be. Um, so it, it definitely gave kind of that nostalgic feel for me because this is one of the first years that uh, Jeff Schultz has not been on the trail. In fact, he wasn't on the trail at all past Willow. So um, it, it was, it's definitely one of those just classic Iditarod shots that I grew up looking at. And so those aerial shots, I always look forward to. Um, I think that one ranked right up there with one of uh, Jeff's most famous photos. I think it's of Lance Mackey um, on the Norton Sound. And there's just all this, I think it's the Norton Sound, and there's all this cracks in the ice. And he's going from little snow pile to snow pile with his team. Um, and uh, it, it's this amazing frozen blue color with the white of the snow and then the musher's red jacket and just the team and, and again it's one of those you know big landscape little bitty musher um and and it just it shows just exactly what this race really entails yeah you know i can zoom in on these dogs looking all happy and excited and psychotic when they're running, but just to show what they're actually experiencing, I think that's a better way to show it. Yeah, I agree with both of you guys. And that first photo I mentioned with um, with Eddie and Matt is impressive, but by far, I think the other one, which is of Kelly Maxner, and it says, Kelly Maxner, as he gradually descends Cape Nome, just a few miles east of the finish line in Nome, Maxiner took sixth place and it, it really does just show the vastness of that area. And for folks that have never had the opportunity to fly across the state of Alaska, it's such a different landscape. You know, most of us, especially those living in the 40, in the lower 48, even on the East coast, everything just looks like one big city. If you fly from, you know, say Boston to, to, I don't know, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, or something like that. It's pretty much just one huge city from the top of uh, at 36,000 feet. But when you're looking at these, and just note that you've been going across this state for so many miles, and without uh, you know the, the checkpoints, there's not a whole lot there except for these mushers, the volunteers, and of course the uh, support staff. And I think these are some of the, the coolest photos of this year's Iditarod for sure. So if you haven't had a chance, head on over to Facebook and then go to Alaska Magazine and check out those photos. And as uh, Tony mentioned, a heck of a lot of people have shared them already. So let's talk a little bit about Jason and Jed, who are back there at the back of the pack. Last night, we talked a little bit about Jason um, train, uh, playing trail sweep, if you will, with, with a lot of these younger guys as they work their way uh, through a pretty nasty storm, but now Jed has taken over that Red Lantern spot, and Jason is just ahead of him, not too far, but Jason only has five dogs, and remember, we talked a couple of days ago about you have to finish with five dogs in harness, and he still has at least another day on the trail, plus his eight-hour rest. Now, of course, that eight-hour rest can really bounce a dog team back, especially after several long runs like they've had in this weather. 
So I'm going to have you go first, Tony, then maybe Michelle, and then I'll add a little bit of a musher's perspective to it at the end. What do you think about Jason and him being down to five dogs? So it's interesting how far back he's been with uh, the five dogs that happened in Koyuk. Um, and I messaged you earlier today, Robert, when um, I had noticed that he was down to five dogs. I said, you know, I'll be really surprised. It'll be really interesting what we see him do in Elam. You know, are, are we looking at a, a possible scratch or is he going to go all the way? Um, and here he is. He's running to White Mountain. He's right now at mile 893, and and uh, White Mountain is considered mile race mile 921. So he's getting there, and he's getting there in in a decent speed, I suppose. Right now, um, you know, I think he's averaging close to eight miles an hour, um, maybe a little bit more, and so. I mean, it's doable. We, we've seen it done in the past. Um, typically, you see it get down that small, closer to White Mountain than Koyuk. Um, but it's doable. It's, it's not asking the dogs too much because you're not having to carry as much dog food as if you're carrying for an entire team. Um, you're not carrying a bunch of weight because you're already probably dropped down to the lightest load you can because you are racing at this point. So it's, it's not like, you know, they have this huge burden on them. It's just, you know, wondering why we're down to five. Um, you know, are we talking sickness in the, in the, the team? Are we talking soreness, which we know a lot of dogs have dealt with just sore muscles throughout this race? Um, you know, is it a combination? He does have young dogs. He is rebuilding his team. So there's a lot of questions that I'm sure we'll know the answers to after the race is over, whether he finishes or scratches. Um, right now, his family is all in Nome waiting to cheer him in. So we're not getting as many updates as we have in the, uh, throughout the race. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's hopeful. And, and I know fans are, are wondering, you know, is he trying to get the Red Lantern? I don't think that's it. Um you're you're running the risk of getting called non-competitive. If you're if you're actively trying to be last place, that is considered being non-competitive. We've seen other teams in the past be pulled because they are trying to get that red lantern. They want you to get that red lantern because you're the last one in, not because you're trying to be the last one in. So um, I don't think that's it. I, I appreciate the fans who want to, some, in some poetic way, have this be Lance Mackey's final run since Jason is running him into his ashes to Gnome. Um, you know, and then Lance can be given a, a red lantern of sort. That's, that's a nice sentiment, but I don't see that happening because, again, at the end of the day, yes, there's a lot of human interest stories. But this is still a sport. This is still a race. They still have rules that they have to follow. Michelle, what do you have? Um, I mean, I agree with Tony's assessment, but I also think that as Lisa stated early on, he is running a younger team. Um, the majority of his team are two and a half years old. They don't have a lot of racing experience. Um, his lead dogs, one is nine years old. I don't know which dogs he still has left in his team, but, um, 
this isn't his first rodeo. I mean, I'm I'm just going to go back to that. I fully think that he has the capability of finishing with five dogs, albeit it's going to be slow and it's going to be difficult. But he is only, what, a hundred and so many miles from uh, the the finish. He's got his eight-hour rest to still deal with in White Mountain. And as long as the weather doesn't kick up and wreak havoc, um, I think that if he keeps trotting along, he'll be fine. I fully think he'll make it before the banquet. Uh, yeah, just to, uh, to parlay on a couple of points both of you guys made. First off, yes, he does have a, a younger team. And I know people say, well, two and a half years old isn't very young for a dog. But in the mushing world, that's that's just coming your own. That would still be a puppy team, as both Michelle and uh, Tony had mentioned. Uh, secondly, uh, Tony had mentioned it's a heck of a lot easier to care, care for a smaller dog team, 110% easier. Uh, you probably don't want to be down to the bare minimum, but if you have a string of 14 dogs and you have a string of seven dogs, that literally cuts your chores down into half. So in these later stages of the race where everybody is just exhausted, you're, you know, you're, you're wanting it to be over and, you know, you still have to do all these chores no matter what. Remember, a musher's job is to take care of the dogs first. So if you're pulling into a checkpoint, even to White Mountain, where you have an eight-hour rest, a 14-dog team may take you an hour or more to do all of your chores, including, you know, if you have to boil water and cook the food and take care of the feet and the massages and the shoulders and all of that. And then you have to do all of that in reverse. So that eight-hour rest could potentially be three hours plus of taking care of your dog team. And that that leaves very little time for the musher to settle down and take care of himself. Now, if you only have six or seven dogs, as we mentioned, it's a heck of a lot easier to do that. Of course, it's still going to take 45 minutes to an hour, but that's only two to two and a half hours uh, compared to three hours, which is an extra hour of sleep, which is important for a team to rest, uh, not only for the dogs, but also the mushers. Because as you guys may or may not know, once the dogs eat and are settled, that doesn't mean that they go to sleep right away. If, if the musher's moving around and other teams are moving around with them, it takes them a while to settle down. And it really, it really is all about practice and training to get a dog to camp well. And uh, that is uh, one of the uh, most difficult things to do for young dogs. If they haven't been out experiencing a race and camping a lot, uh, it takes them a while to settle down. And I would imagine by the time they're at White Mountain, they're pretty much in the groove and they figured out how to camp by now. Uh, one other story that uh, Tony had mentioned that is buzzing around a lot of the Facebook groups is it would be a fitting end to Lance if that Red Lantern was in fact uh, given to Jason because we know uh, that he is, you know, sort of running this in honor of of both Jason, or excuse me, Lance and his mom Kathy. Uh, that's been sort of the story of Jason, probably the story of of, of the back of the pack. I did a rod for a long time. Yeah, it would be a fitting tribute, especially uh, when they extinguished the widow's lamp there in Nome. And what the widow's lamp is is they leave they leave that lamp burning until the last musher comes in and it harkens back to the old um, roadhouse days. If the roadhouse was open, they would leave a, a lamp on. Uh, 
so that the the mushers that were going by would know, hey, this is a, a safe place to stop. I can, you know, jump in for a bite to eat or whatever. And uh, that sort of worked their way down the trail. That's pretty much the romanticized version of, um, you know, leaving the lights on for that old Motel 6 ad that we've all heard for sure. So I don't think that that's the reason, as uh, Tony mentioned, this is a race. And uh, I am sure that he is doing whatever he can to get that um, that team to know him. And I doubt that uh, the Red Lantern and, you know, the hoopla around that is at the forefront of his mind. So it'll be interesting to see how it will develop. And uh, we have about a day or day and a half left to see how he does. So anything else on uh, the updates or, or stories from the trail before we jump into our sort of feature story of the day, Michelle or Tony? No, I don't think so. Well, I'm just curious to know on the tracker, uh, Tony, where do you see the Jed and Jason at right now? Um, let me hit the refresh to make sure. Jed just stopped at uh, mile 892. And Jason, which his tracker hasn't updated in 11 minutes, which this part of the trail has been very glitchy for the GPS this year. Um, but he's still at mile, he's showing at mile 893 as of 11 minutes ago. So he's probably coming down out of the hills there um, and getting ready to head towards Gullivan. All right, guys, there you go for our trail report. So there has been a little bit of drama and back and forth pretty much the entire race because uh, the insider crew uh, said, I guess it was in the off season or leading up to the race, hey, we're going to do our best to try to cover uh, some of the back of the pack to, you know, middle of the pack mushers, add more commentary and stories and, and things like that. And they pretty much stuck with the format that they've done for many years now, where they've just covered the the front runners and uh, you know done what they could to to do that. And I know we've talked about this story a bunch of times, but over the last day or so, it's really blown up, especially after uh, the first groups of mushers have have come in. And I was reading on some of the posts today, and uh, I believe it was Sebastian that said, "Hey." It's all well and good, but about 90% of the viewership falls off pretty much right after the, the first musher comes in. And he's an insider, also a uh, commentator, multi-Iditarod and Yukon Quest veteran. So when he talks, a lot of people uh, pay attention and listen to him. And of course, uh, he has a valid point. Other uh, mushers who are also checkers and race judges said pretty much the same thing that, you know, their job is to to tell the story of the race and good or bad, the story of the race is is a race and we want to know who wins the race and, and all of that. I mean, it's great to follow sports on TV, but there's a reason why uh, the Kansas City Chiefs and the Cincinnati Bengals and right. the New England Patriots and all those guys are on those marquee games because those are the big names in the NFL. And we could do that with every sport. So I guess there's several points that I would like to make, but I would like to start it with that. And let's go with Michelle. What do you think about the Iditarod Insider crew saying, hey, we're going to do our best to cover some of the back of the pack guys. 
but they didn't do that. They pretty much did what they typically do and, and uh, covered the, the, you know, the front runners. And that was about it. I think that the fans are clamoring for a opportunity to have a storytelling um, format. And I think that insider um, could take a note from our show even and do the storytelling as a podcast, if you will, I'm fine with the competition, but they need to, they need to tell the story of all of the mushers, including the back of the Packers. And if they would focus on the back of the pack a little bit earlier on, like well before they get to the Yukon, when the race really starts, I think that that would give an opportunity for the fans to learn more about other mushers. Um, we don't have, like I said on previous episodes, I mean, we have some recognizable names, but we don't have that rock star and, you know, uh, Pete Kaiser and Brent Sass and Jesse Holmes were kind of those guys and, and even Nick Petit. And then one of them had to leave. And if you noticed the coverage also left when he left. Uh, one point with that uh, about being able to see the insider crew, I believe it was Jesse Royer. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong when, when it's uh, your turn up, Tony, that said, hey, I didn't see an insider crew since Finger Lake. And Finger Lake is way back there. What is that third or fourth checkpoint back? And she was solid middle of the pack and a big name in terms of, uh, you know, the story on the trail. I believe that was her, was it not? And if it was, uh, what's your take on this uh, this insider uh, situation? Um, well, I did not see that comment or video, so I can't comment as to who it was. Um, but it is not anything new. We saw that when Speedy John Rowe, uh dropped out of the top ten. Uh, we didn't follow her as much. Uh, Martin Boozer still got a lot of coverage, um, and I have my suspicions on why that is, but I really don't want to get into a pissing match uh, later once it gets out what I said. But um, <laughs> And it's nothing bad. I, I mean, we all have our favorites. We all have our biases. And not only that, Martin was very good for a number of years of starting strong and then deciding to do a camping trip for the second half. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but he got followed quite a bit by Insider. But he also is one of those mushers that's willing to give the interview every time. I do agree um, with fans that Insider was disappointing this year. I don't know if I agree completely that they didn't follow through with their promise because I never saw anything that suggested we're going to interview all of these people multiple times. We're going to follow them from beginning to end. What I saw promised was we are going to have live feeds in these checkpoints until the last musher leaves. And we saw that from Unilaclete on or Caltag on one in the in there. And that makes sense because some of the checkpoints before that, the, the logistics of getting the crews out there and then trying to get a signal and being able to troubleshoot when things go wrong is somewhat non-existent. There are certain checkpoints that they have never been able to go live in um, with the infrastructure that they have. Now, in the future, if 
Elon Musk wants to get involved with Iditarod, I'm sure Greg Heister and crew would jump on the opportunity to use that technology once it's more reliable here in Alaska, as we talked about earlier in the season, Robert. Um, but I, I'm not sure that Greg promised more than that. I think he tried to argue with quite a few of us early on in the year that Insider's the best ever, that it doesn't need to have an overhaul. It does. We don't understand how hard it is. And he's right. I'm not out there. I don't know what it takes. I was watching them set up. They did do a few live feeds. He was on his cell phone with a really crappy signal, as you'd expect, out in the middle of nowhere. And at one point, they're trying to set up the cables, and it's so cold outside that the cables are literally, literally frozen, and you can't. They're just, they're just frozen in their little crumpled position that they had been in. Um, and so knowing just the little bit of audio tech that I know, I, I understand that some things like cables, if, if you can't bend them and get them to go the right way, that's, that's going to be an issue. So I, I understand that I don't understand everything about what goes into setting up those feeds. Um, I do agree, though, that they could really benefit from more human interest stories. They did the interviews of each musher before the start of the race. They went to every kennel and, and interviewed them with some of their dogs and everything. That was a great addition. Um, but I do agree that it's really disheartening to see that they don't even stick around really for the top 10. Now, Greg is there. Greg was in the shoot today when Anna and Christy came in. I don't necessarily catch him in there with every team, but I assume he's there for most teams, um, just like our champion has been out for most teams uh, this year. Ryan Reddington has greeted, if not every team, just about every team. Um, I I think I I think Insider could do better. I think that if if we were really getting nitpicky, or if I wanted to get on a soapbox, I would say they need to drop Iditarod, ITC, whoever is making these decisions. They need to drop Doc Dogs, and they need to drop Dogs. They need to just get rid of those ideas for right now. Put them on a not even on a back burner, put them in the cupboard, put them in the recipe book, whatever cliche you want to use. And they need to funnel that money that they're funneling into those projects that really have not come to fruition. I don't think we got a lot of new viewership from Doc Dogs, and Dogs has yet to, the, the little Netflix version of Doggy TV or whatever, hasn't come to light yet in the, the four years they've been talking about it. They need to set that money aside and they need to support insider. They need to get better equipment. Cause I do know from talking with other people within that little wheelhouse that some of the stuff is outdated, which is understandable when you're using a shoestring budget, maybe pay your cameraman a little bit more that way as well and really grow insider. Um, you know, work on getting sponsorships that are just for insiders so that maybe you can offer a little bit more incentive to the new fans to, to subscribe to Insider by giving them some sneak peeks or 
some tastes of Insider by making some of the coverage free. Um, you know, there, there are other options there. But as far as what fans are, are complaining about, I'm not so much annoyed with the coverage of the back of the pack. Um, I, I think they tried something new this year with the three windows where you could choose which feed you wanted to watch, and that's when the site went down. Uh, I would say next time, don't try it. Don't try to bring that online the day the champion comes in because you're just asking for what happened to happen. Um, but I like that idea. I think that they need to do that from start to finish, um, not just the last couple of days. So I'm just totally spitballing and rambling, and I do apologize for that. But, I mean, there, there's validity to those of us who have paid for Insider and watched it for years. Um, you know, I, I think it's going to fall on deaf ears like it has for years now. Um, but that, that's just my take on it. Michelle? Well, but Insider is, uh, is Insider owned by Iditarod? Greg Heister runs it. Right. And he he owns it. Okay. He's partnered with Iditarod, but he does not make money off of it. All of the money goes to Iditarod. Right. But Iditarod does not own Insider. And so my my point that I'm trying to bring around is Iditarod is not a media company. Insider mm-hmm. is attempting to be the media company that Iditarod uses exclusively. And I mean, I understand their partnership, but I think that the mistake being made is that they're trying to overlap what both entities is attempting to do, provide us with Mm -hmm. coverage for Iditarod. Iditarod needs to focus more on doing a better job at putting the race together while insider needs to do a better job at providing the media and the fan interaction. And once they understand their roles, I think that they would promote and present a much better product. But I mean, I don't know. I've been part of a media company for a long time. I've also been a dog musher out on the race trail. I understand the logistics involved in getting all of your equipment out there to work. For crying out loud, I know how hard it is to get my dumb iPhone to work sometimes out there. But if you've got two conglomerates like this trying to overlap each other, that's where the biggest mistake in lies, in my opinion. All right. So I have a couple of opinions on this. Uh, First off, I am fully aware and understand that they have a very small staff and probably a very small budget in order to cover a thousand miles of trail and 30 odd people spread out over a couple of hundred miles. That's a difficult task by any stretch of the imagination. As I believe uh, Sebastian said earlier today, that uh, it takes a heck of a toll on your equipment and it also takes a heck of a toll on the person that's doing that task because literally you're only going about twice as fast as, as the musher. So if a musher is going seven or eight miles an hour, if you're following them on snow machines, which a lot of these guys are, uh, you're only going about 14 miles an hour. That makes for very long days to travel down the trail and, of course, get into these checkpoints and try to set up gear and fumble with uh, frozen fingers and the whole nine yards in very cold temperatures. I've tried to do that with podcasting. It's very difficult. 
my second thought to this is uh, it's it's a difficult event to cover anyway. I don't know if anybody's ever tried to watch something like the Tour de France bike race or an ultra marathon or something like that. It's a very difficult to cover a long distance race by any stretch. I think a lot of people, when they follow sporting events, they, they put it in their mind that they're following a sporting event like a typical sporting event, whether it's the Olympics or football or baseball or whatever. And it's tough to, to make apples to oranges arguments based on that. My third point is probably my most controversial point to this is I don't know if the Iditarod cares if they're attracting new fans. I think that they are more worried about or more cognizant of attracting corporate sponsors, the folks that are paying the big bills that helps the race get along. They're not going to get rich off of a $40 uh, Iditarod Insider package. I don't care how many people you have listening, and they don't have gobs of listeners and or watchers. I would bet it's just in the several thousands at best, because if you ask anybody else around the world, unless you're a mushing fan, they don't know anything about a Iditarod anyway. So it's not just the average sports fan that's watching Iditarod, especially paying $40 to watch little uh, blips jump down the screen on a GPS tracker. They're just, we have to face it, folks. There just aren't those types of fans out there in the world that are doing that. It's a very, very niche sport. So you have to go where your resources are best spent. And I would believe that Iditarod's resources are best spent by capturing corporate sponsors. And corporate sponsors do not care about the human interest stories. They want to make sure that the race is promoted in the best light possible. There are no controversies. There are no, um, you know, behind the scenes grumblings, if you will. And that's what is is uh, paying their returns. If you think about the biggest corporate sponsors that Iditarod has, they're not corporate sponsors that are looking for a return on investment from fans. And I'm thinking about old school sponsors like Coca-Cola and Cabela's and Timberland and things like that. They sponsored that race with hopes of, hey, look what we're doing. Now go into our stores or buy our products because of the correlation. The sponsors that they have now, like Donlin Gold, they're not looking for fans. Uh, some of the other bigger sponsors like Pike Legal Group, which is a small law firm based in uh, a small town in Kentucky, they're not going to gain any fans by being a sponsor. Uh, Ryanair, are they going to gain sponsors by being a sponsor, fans by being a sponsor of the race? I doubt it. They're a very small company based in Unicolite, and they sponsor Ryan Reddington, which is a cool sponsor, by the way. Ryan Air sponsoring sponsoring Ryan Reddington, <laughs> but otherwise, except for maybe Alaskan Brewing Company, there aren't those sponsors that need those fan support. So I don't know necessarily if Iditarod cares about building a huge fan base. Of course, they would like to, but it's just really not there, in my opinion. And then lastly. Uh, covering every person on the trail is just not doable. Of course, everybody who has family out on the trail would love to have videos of their family member, their favorite musher or whatever. But is that doable? I mean, is it doable to chase down 
Jed Stevenson. I mean, he has one hell of a story with the ER connections and all of that. Mm-hmm. But is it doable to, you know, spend time and resources chasing after this guy just because he has a human interest story that may make waves to his family, but to other people, uh, it's a cool story, but it's not a story that's going to make headlines, if you know what I mean. The headlines are made by the front of the pack, and and that's unfortunate in any sport. You know, we hear about we hear about Tom Brady and Peyton Manning and uh, Baker Mayfield and all those type of people because they are the personalities of their particular sport. Let's wrap right back around on this and uh, do some closing thoughts on this. This time, Tony, you go first and then Michelle, and, and then I'll just sort of wrap it up. Go ahead. Okay, so first off, yes, Ryanair sponsoring Ryan, really cool. But Ryanair actually sponsored the top three mushers this year. Oh, that's uh, cool. They also sponsor Pete and, and Richie. So just a big shout out there. Um, and, and thank you for your support of dog mushing, not just Iditarod, but the other races that, that Ryanair supports, like the Cusco races. So, um, but yeah, you know, going back to that, when you're talking about the Olympics, you know, I... I think many of our listeners know that I'm a little bit of a figure skating fan. Um, And during the Olympics, you know, for many years when it was just basically your national broadcasting uh, stations that had the Olympics, you got whatever they deemed primetime worthy. And so you didn't get some of those human interest stories, even the American skaters didn't always make that cut. U.S. pair skating sucks. So, you know, I mean, you're, you're not going to see that on there. They're not going to show them wiping the ice with their tissues. So now that we have these streaming platforms, we are able to see all of the skaters, but the commentators don't come in until the last two or three flights of skaters, which is either four teams per dance pairs uh, groups. So you'd get like 12 skates, 12 skates out of that. Or um, it's, I think six or eight for the singles. So you get a little bit more of that, but the commentators, your Johnny Weir and your Dara Lipinski and Terry Gannon, they're not even there. So to sit there and, you know, really gripe about Bruce Lee, who looked absolutely exhausted through this entire race, and then my understanding is, I'm not sure if it was Bruce or, or Greg, but somebody's been dealing with some health issues in the off season. So they're not at their 100% health uh, anyway. Um, you know, to ask them to stretch it out over a two-week period when, in Greg's case, he's been working on this for months now. Um, you know, I, I think it is unreasonable unreasonable to sit there and go, well, they're not there for everybody. I wish that they'd be there at least for the top 10. That's pretty exciting. And most of them come in pretty quickly that you could probably keep the cameras rolling, but your sponsors that come in for the championship, your outside media that come in for the championship, they're gone that same day. They might book the hotel for the week because they're not sure exactly when they're coming in but they're gone within a day of that champion coming in, depending on when they come in. So, I mean, if your sponsorship is gone and like you said, that's where your money really is, you know, I mean, yes, we fans that are giving money deserve 
a quality product. And this year, I don't feel that we got that with all of the extra technical glitches that they had. Um, but you're not going to get somebody going for the 50th place or even in this case, the, the 20 something place. Michelle, you know, Robert, what I found ironic is, um, when you mention, you know, quarterbacks, like, you know, I'm a fan of Baker Mayfield because he's an underdog and I just, I, I adore him. I think he's a great player, but, um, he doesn't play for my favorite team, but that doesn't matter. That's, kind of my point here that I'm going to uh, bring around. And that is that looking at these mushers websites, while you guys were talking, I just flipped through randomly eight of the mushers own websites. And I'm not going to tell you the names that I looked at. They weren't well-known and some of them were well-known, but not one of them at random just now, not one of them said, support Iditarod. Not one of them said, become part of Iditarod to help me get to the race. None of them are saying that. So the mushers themselves aren't supporting Iditarod. You know what I mean? Um, so if you're a fan of whoever, maybe supporting that musher and giving a donation to that musher and then purchasing the level of insider that you choose, maybe that's the best way to support this race in taking it into the next decade. Uh, my final thought is sort of following a model that we talked about many times in the off season. We, we, Tony and I really thought that the, what the, the Krill paws or Q paws folks were doing right before COVID was exceptional. I thought that that one broadcast year that they did, uh, where they did the Bear Grease and the Finmark and the Russian race and Iditarod was top notch. And I think if they figured out a way to do that effectively, that would build the fan base more than anything. How can they do that? There's a couple of ways that they can do it. Uh, just taking what the other sports have learned since COVID. The NFL Network is a prime example. The NFL Network has their main guys in the studio. Now, you can easily hire out a studio right here in Anchorage, set up a, a soundstage, rent it out for two weeks, and have your main guy there, whoever that guy is. It would not be Greg Heister or Bruce Lee or somebody like that. It would have to be somebody that can anchor the broadcast. Have them in the studio and then have everybody else on Zoom. That's how they do it on the NFL Network, 24 hours a day. They have their main guys, and then they have their reporters, their analysts, whatever they are, their color commentators. All of those guys are on Zoom, and they have feeds in their house. It's, um, you know, I think it's called an IDC connection or something like that. It's a very secure connection, so it's not your typical Zoom like we're all used to now, but a very clean audio and video feed and run your feeds that way. I think it would be exceptional for the fan base. The next level up to that, of course, is closer to QPAWS coverage. Have your soundstage, have somebody like Dallas CV or some big time color commentator up there that is providing that. Do it in prime time, do it on, you know, do it on a streaming platform, do it on YouTube, do it on Facebook Live, whatever you wanna do, but do it that way and pay those guys. I don't know what their budget is for Insider, 
But pay somebody like Dallas CV $20,000, $50,000 for two weeks to get that commitment out of him. I guarantee somebody would jump on that. Is $50,000 a lot of money? Heck yeah, it is. But $50,000 to attract a national or international fan base, there's a huge return on investment there. And it has absolutely nothing to do with a uh, live feed in some remote checkpoint in Caltag, Alaska. It's commentating back and forth. That's why we watch sports. If you're watching the NFL, you're literally watching like 12 minutes of live action in a three-hour game. There's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. Uh, you know, it's a 60-minute game, but live action is like 12 minutes of them actually running around the field. So there's a lot of stories to be told. And I think if they had some way to do that, they could do that very well. And I know that they've done it in the past where they've had uh, Bruce and Sebastian and some other folks sort of in a studio situation where they're going back and forth giving commentary, but it's not a dedicated, fancy graphics, overlays, lighting, mics, all of that. Not this crap that you can buy from Guitar Center. We know what we're talking about when we're talking about you know high caliber video, high caliber audio, and just making it that way. So I think that that's what they need to do. And uh, whether they will do it or not, I have no idea. But the only way that they can take it to the next level is go where the fans are. And that's on streaming, that's on live feeds, that's on YouTube, wherever it is. It's not these stories where you're charging 40 bucks a person for. Nobody's going to pay it. They don't pay it now. Uh, only a handful, a couple of thousand tops are forking over the 40 bucks. And they're only doing that because they're they're mega fans. I'm a huge fan of Iditarod. I've followed Iditarod since I was a kid and I've never subscribed to the Insider. I can get the information I need by doing my own research, talking to other people, having friends that get Insider, whatever. I think that there's other ways. So we'll leave it at that. I would love to hear from your fa our fans. What do you think? What do you think is a solution to this? Uh, do you think what they're doing right now works or doesn't work and why? Let us know in the comments. Let us know on our social pages. Uh, let us know on Twitter. Definitely tag us, hashtag us, whatever you want to do so we can keep this discussion alive. All right, so we've spent enough time going back and forth on that. Let's jump over to our musher profile. And it is a guy named Deke. And I am not going to try to say his last name. <laughs> I know Google Translate says something very interesting. We'll have Tony talk about that in just a second. But what do you know about oh, Deke? <laughs> what do you know about Deke, uh, Michelle? Well, Deke likes to hang out near Chicken, Alaska. And he works for the Bureau of Land Management. He has a degree in business and recreation. He got his career started in Florida as a park ranger in Everglades National Park. And um, he really enjoys being a mid-distance and distance musher. But more than anything, he's enjoying some hobbies. Being a dad fixing things and mowing the lawn. I like it. I like it. So Tony, what in the world does his last name mean if you put it into Google Translate? Okay, so I don't know if our listeners have seen this meme, but it like became this thing where Iditarod got blamed for having this glitch. It's not Iditarod's fault, guys. 
um, if you use Chrome, all you have to do is right click and hit translate to English. And Deke's name goes from, I'm not even going to try and say it either, Robert, um, but it goes from his last name to what his last name actually means in English, which is born naked. <laughs> Um, so, you know, it's, it's not, Iditarod did not somehow accidentally edit his name or anything like that. It was someone who knew that, uh, you know, Google Translate would have a little fun with that name and then they screenshot it. Um, I don't know if there's a way that, you know, Iditarod in the future will, will lock that feature. I don't think it's necessarily needed. Um, it's just a little extra tidbit. I, I love it. And did you get a chance to talk to the family or, or his handlers or whomever? I did. I did. I, I talked to his uh, mom today. And uh, so I did get to, to ask our two questions. Uh, the first being, of course, what's one thing they want uh, our listeners and fans to know about who Deke is and what makes him tick. And she answered, Deke absolutely loves what he does with his world of dog mushing. When he is with his dogs, which he calls his best friends, he easily goes into his zone where he enters a state of blissful flow. Um, and she didn't give me as much uh, info as some of the others, but she's also there in Gnome. And she said that she has very sketchy uh, internet up there uh, with Verizon cell service. So she uh, wasn't able to really go into depth. But then the, the second question I went with was, um, what is one thing, not including mandatory gear, that Deke has to have in his sled bag or with him on the trail? And she answered, Deke always has an external speaker for music. He is very motivated through music that touches him. So just a little bit of extra info on Deke, who uh, came in today and this morning, actually, in 20th place. And if Nick Petit had not played Speed Demon, Deke would have won that uh, Safety to Gnome award. So a little bit about Deke. He is one of those changing of the guard, if we will, one of those names that you probably have not heard a lot about. Uh, we haven't talked about him very often in our coverage, and he is running his third race. He started in 2020. That was his rookie year. He did that in 13 days, 18 hours, 48 minutes. He ran again in 2022, so he took 2021 off. And uh, I don't know if I said, but he was in 27th place his rookie year. Uh, in 2022, he was in 29th place and did uh, quite a bit better. He did uh, a little more than two days better, 11 days, four hours, 12 minutes. So doing very well compared to his last two runs. And let me pull that up very quickly. Uh, you said he was in 20th place at your last refresh or he came in 20th place at, at the last uh, refresh, right, Tony? Yes. Uh, yes, he came in this morning in 20th place. So, hey, moving up in the ranks every year, that's very promising. Uh, it does not hurt to, uh, to move up in the ranks like that. And when you have a team of, right now, what do we just have, 20, 22 mushers, uh, I think I think he is the changing of the guard, at least in terms of name recognition 
and that sort of thing. Do you agree with me, Tony? Most definitely. I've been watching him since his rookie year. I've actually put him on um, my list of who to watch in the mid-distance races. He's run the Yukon Quest and done very well. Um, so it's he's definitely one of those that I think is is here to stay and sticking around for a while. So definitely check him out. Unfortunately, his website on his bio is not working, but I'm sure he's very active on social media. So check him out and, and give him a follow. It definitely help out these, these uh, newer mushers. So let's jump over to the question of the day. Yesterday's question was, what leadership qualities have you exhibited at one point or another? And I read some of these responses earlier this morning. I always read these when I can't sleep at night and I uh, just happen to catch a few. Uh, a lot of them say that uh, their leadership comes from giving back. And I saw one of them said, hey, I don't have any leadership qualities whatsoever. So uh, that person uh, is selling themselves a little short, I'm sure. I'm sure that they would uh, help out in a pinch if they had to. What other responses did you have, Tony? Um, I had a teacher uh, respond to it today. And for the life of me, I cannot find it now. But she basically... Um, said that she's very good at encouraging um, a group to have, you know, positive, feel-good attitude sort of thing, but that she also wanted to give, um, here we go, here we go, let me find it here. Um, <laughs> uh, it, her name's Elizabeth, and she says, I'm good at building enthusiasm within a group. I have a lot of opportunity to do this as a teacher. A recent example is that my students didn't know what the Iditarod was a month ago. And just the other day, they were screaming and cheering with me as Ryan came into Nome. I like it. Any others that you want to share? Um, like you said, a lot of them was, you know, just being very good at supporting others, encouraging others, letting others do what they do best and getting out of the way. Um, was uh, a t person on Twitter named Karen. And then um, that second question that was, how have they come to light is how I asked it. And she answered with parenthood, which I assume is a good answer. I don't have kids, so I don't know about that. But, um, but yeah, uh, problem solving was another one on Twitter. This one was a little more difficult. It wasn't, you know, the, the fun little answer, uh, make the jokes. We, we really tried to challenge our listeners and our, our um, social media group into thinking and getting a little bit deep. And I think it, it shied some people away from it. But uh, the answers that we got were really, really good. So uh, thank you to those that did get a little out of your comfort zone and, and, and write that and write into us about it. So on that note, tonight's question is a little bit more lighthearted compared to last night's. And if you guys remember just a few nights ago, we asked what your favorite mushing movie was. And a lot of people chimed in on that and said all sorts of things, Iron Will, The Great Alone, Snow Dogs, Eight Below, uh, the Atla movie, there's a whole bunch of sled dog movies out there. Not enough of them, in my opinion. There could be a lot more. As a matter of fact, Tony, that movie Siberia, 
we did find on Amazon <laughs> Prime. That's a Willem Dafoe movie. And I think that that's what we're going to watch right after the show tonight. So if you had a chance to watch nice. Siberia, check it out and let us know in the comments what you think, because we are going to be watching it in about a half an hour. So tonight's, <laughs> tonight's question is, what is your favorite book? about mushing. Now, it could be a novel. It could be a memoir. There's a whole bunch of those out there from a heck of a lot of mushers. Uh, I'm sure you just search mushing memoirs and a lot would pop up. It could be a coffee table book like Chasing Dogs by Jeff Schultz. It could be uh, a text like uh, the Collins Twins way back in the day, sort of the mushing Bible uh, there's a bunch of them that you could choose from. And depending on your level of fandom and or if you're a dog musher, that will probably steer the way that you answer this question. So the question is, I did a question. Hashtag I did a question. What is your favorite mushing book? I have no idea who's supposed to go first here, but let's have Michelle. What is your favorite mushing book? Uh, well... Probably the one that we wrote together. Ooh, that's a good one, Michelle. We wrote a children's <laughs> book called A Musher's Dream, Team Aneke. It's about our travels up to Alaska with our dogs, Bodie and Reagan. It's about, uh, I don't know, 15 pages geared towards about the kindergarten to second grade level. There's a whole lot of well, schools it, out there that have that book. Kindergartners would have trouble reading it. Right. It's, it's a third grade level. Third grade. A lot of schools have that book, don't they? They do, and you can get it at firstpaw.shop. There. <laughs> Shameless <laughs> plug there. <laughs> yes. So so Michelle says our own book, which I guess is, is appropriate. It qualifies. It qualifies. Tony, what's your favorite mushing book? Um, so I'm going to go with a children's book, too, because this literally... I, I used to say when I... Um, worked in the gift shop there at Wild Ride um, in between shows, I would, as parents were looking for, or grandparents rather, were looking for gifts for their grandchildren, I would bring this book out and say, this book changed my life, which always got a, a little bit of a giggle, but I'm like, no, really, this is why I'm working here right now, this book. And it's um, Danger the Dog Yard Cat. Uh, it's by Shelley Gill and Libby Riddle. It's a children's book that came out in 1989-90, so I was four or five years old when it came out. It is a retelling of Libby Riddle's win in Iditarod, which happened in 1985, the year I was born. And um, instead of telling the historical version, it's, um, it's a little twist. Danger the Dogyard Cat is the lead dog and takes the team to Nome after the lead dog gets injured right before the big race. Uh, really sweet story. Uh, she, many of her dogs that were on her team, they get featured. The illustrations are just perfect, as most of those books are. Um, and then if you really, really want to get excited about the book, there, there is an audio recording where Libby actually reads you the book and Hobo Jim sings songs throughout the book. 
so it's it's a really fun little uh, little. If you can find the audio, I know that it comes in CD form now. Um, it's really hard to find, but if you can find the audio version to go with the book because it tells you when to turn the page, um, it it's just it's the best book ever. Um, and then for more more of an adult, uh, one of my favorite books is um, by Gary Paulson. It's Winter Dance. A lot of fans love it. That's a great book. And then This Much Country by Kristen Knight-Pace. Well, you covered all the genres of sled dog books there. <laughs> um, so I have a question. I have not read the children's book. You said it was the it was the dog oh yard cat, gosh. but it, it's a dog? Yes. Okay. All right. No, uh, no, no. It's a kitty cat. She's a ki- he's a kitty cat named Danger. But and he- and he... He walks around the dog yard and he, he's a big pain in the butt to all the dogs. And then they get to Anchorage to go to, you know, to race and everything. And the lead dog comes up with a hurt foot. And so Mud Shark, the wheel dog, looks at Livy and says, well, we've got this cat. Let's just put him in a harness. And yeah, I know it makes no sense to a musher, but... I mean, Karen Romstead, she had a cat named Bait because the cat liked to tease the dogs, and she's like, you're going to end up Bait. And so this is kind of what Danger's personality was. And it is based on her cat, Danger, uh, who was a dog yard cat who, you know, kept the mice out of the food and everything, but she got him from a local shelter. So she tells that part of the story. That part's true. The part that she about her winning the Iditarod is true. How that all plays out, not true. I like it, and there there are a lot of children's books on the on the mushing genre. I know if you go to the Anchorage Air, Anchorage Alaska, <laughs> I said pull Anchorage <laughs> Airport, uh, you can see all of the all of the different uh, sled dog books, and a lot of them are children's books at that uh, bookstore. Uh, I believe that's on the Sea Concourse over by kind of like the McDonald's area. Is that Sea Concourse, Michelle? Yeah, that is. So, um, yeah, you wouldn't have known about that children's book because you and I were not children when that book came out. I know, I know. And my kids <laughs> were not swinging that direction when you until you came into our lives. So I'm going to check out, I'm going to have to check that book out. I'll have to buy it on Amazon or whatever. Okay. So I guess it's my turn. I did really enjoy winter dance. It was one of my first uh, books that I ever read about mushing. It's about the same time I got started into the sport sometime in the mid to late nineties. I, I truly think that the, the Collins twins books is, is the mushing Bible. I, I read that religiously when, when I was an up-and-coming musher, and and I took a heck of a lot of their advice. Uh, there's a bunch of sprint books out there that I really enjoy, and a lot of memoirs, as as uh, Tony had mentioned, uh, with Kristen Knight Pace's book. I remember having her on the show when that book first dropped. But I'm going to have to go with the old standby, because I think it's one of the greatest stories ever told, and that is The Cruelest Miles by, I believe it's Salisbury, who is the other one I can't think of right off the bat. But it is a, a retelling of the 1925 serum run. And there's a lot of personal connection there. And that connection will grow much, much grander in the next coming years. So stay tuned to that. And speaking of which, before we uh, finish up the show, 
just a couple of days ago, we dropped a little bit of a teaser about a podcast that's being released. It happened to be released today. And somebody caught on to that on Twitter and made a comment and said, I had no idea what they were talking about until I saw the connection this afternoon. That's the reason we're doing this, guys, to uh, to reach you guys to new levels of becoming a fan of the sport. Good, better, and different in terms of stories. But uh, that's, that's the way that uh, the social media works these days, I guess. So before we go, Michelle, what did we miss? Or do you have anything to add? First paw dot shop a musher's dream 1099 <laughs> that's all it is 1099 and we will sign it for you if you'd like all right tony <laughs> anything we missed well i don't have a mushing book to plug so i i have nothing <laughs> but you have cookies at our patreon level at the 25 dollars super fan <laughs> level you can get some homemade cookies made just for you in the flavor that you like Make sure you head on over to patreon.com slash firstpawmedia and check it out. And what we will do, anybody that signs up today at the $5 level or higher, we will send you out one of our books, A Musher's Dream, and we will sign it for you. So then uh, you need to put that all the way through until the last musher comes in. Yep, until until the end of our broadcast. So do not say in June. I want a book. I will send you a book. Send send me your address. I will send you a book. So do not listen to this in June. I know some of you do. Uh, Do not listen to this in June and say, hey, I want my book. I signed up for $5. If you twist our arm hard enough, we will probably still do it. But the offer will go until the end of our Iditarod coverage, which is Sunday night. So anybody at the $5 level or higher we will send you out a book as a perk. And then, of course, whatever other perks are listed on patreon.com slash firstpawmedia. And lastly, make sure you subscribe. Make sure you tell your friends. Make sure you leave some reviews and whatever else that you're willing to do to share oh, the love. one last shout out. And if you guys are even still listening, I appreciate the comment, <laughs> Mike Arnott. Yes, he, he enjoys Michelle's banter back and forth with her husband. So I don't know if that's a good comment or bad. It's a great comment. <laughs> so, so there you go. All right, guys, we will be back on tomorrow. Tomorrow is our Friday night coverage. We're still here while everybody else is packing up to go home. I love those sponsors that we talked about. They've moved on. They're moving on to different races that they're they're sponsoring and throwing their money at. But we're still here doing it every night. So make sure you stick with us for the next few Until then, we'll see you guys next time. Goodbye. From Dog Works Radio, this is Mushing Radio. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Your host is Robert Forto. Our producers are Michelle Forto, Alex Stein, and Tony Ryder. Our executive producer is Robert Forto. Created for DogWorks Radio and First Paw Media.